The Valley of the Beast by Algernon Blackwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mooseboy Alfonso. The Valley of the Beast by Algernon Blackwood. 1. As they emerged suddenly from the dense forest, the Indian halted, and Grimwood, his employer, stood beside him, gazing into the beautiful wooded valley that lay spread below them in the blaze of a golden sunset. Both men leaned upon their rifles, caught by the enchantment of the unexpected scene. "'We camp here,' said Tushali abruptly after a careful survey. "'Tomorrow we make a plan.' He spoke excellent English. The note of decision almost of authority in his voice was noticeable, but Grimwood set it down to the natural excitement of the moment. Every track they had followed during the last two days, but one track in particular as well, had headed straight for this remote and hidden valley, and the sport promised to be unusual. That's so, he replied in the tone of one giving an order. You can make camp ready at once. And he sat down on a fallen hemlock to take off his moccasin boots and grease his feet that ached from the arduous day now drawing to a close. Though under ordinary circumstances he would have pushed on for another hour or two, he was not averse to a night here, for exhaustion had come upon him during the last bit of rough going. His eye and muscles were no longer steady, and it was doubtful if he could have shot straight enough to kill. He did not mean to miss a second time. With his Canadian friend Iredale, the latter's half-breed, and his own Indian, Tushali, the party had set out three weeks ago to find the wonderful big moose the Indians reported were traveling in the Snow River country. They soon found that the tale was true. Tracks were abundant. They saw fine animals nearly every day, but though carrying good heads, the hunters expected better still and left them alone. Pushing up the river to a small chain of lakes near its source, they then separated into two parties, each with its nine-foot bark canoe, and packed in for three days after the yet bigger animals the Indians agreed would be found in the deeper woods beyond. Excitement was keen, expectation keener still. The day before they separated, Iredale shot the biggest moose of his life, and its head, bigger even than the grand Alaskan heads, hangs in his house today. Grimwood's hunting blood was fairly up. His blood was of the fiery, not to say ferocious, quality. It almost seemed he liked killing for its own sake. Four days after the party broke into two, he came upon a gigantic track, whose measurements and length of stride keyed every nerve he possessed to its highest tension. Tushali examined the tracks for some minutes with care. "'It is the biggest moose in the world,' he said at length, a new expression on his inscrutable red visage. Following it all that day, they yet got no sight of the big fellow that seemed to be frequenting a little marshy dip of country, too small to be called valley, where willow and undergrowth abounded. He had not yet sended his pursuers. They were after him again at dawn. Toward the evening of the second day, Grimwood caught a sudden glimpse of the monster among a thick clump of willows, and the sight of the magnificent head that easily beat all records set his heart beating like a hammer with excitement. He aimed and fired, but the moose, instead of crashing, went thundering away through the farther scrub and disappeared, the sound of his plunging canter presently dying away. Grimwood had missed even if he had wounded. They camped, and all next day, leaving the canoe behind, they followed the huge track, 
but though finding signs of blood, these were not plentiful, and the shot had evidently only grazed the animal. The traveling was of the hardest. Toward evening, utterly exhausted, the spore led them to the ridge they now stood upon, gazing down into the enchanting valley that opened at their feet. The giant moose had gone down into this valley. He would consider himself safe there. Grimwood agreed with the Indian's judgment. They would camp for the night and continue at dawn the wild hunt after the biggest moose in the world. Supper was over, the small fire used for cooking dying down, when Grimwood became first aware that the Indian was not behaving quite as usual. What particular detail drew his attention is hard to say. He was a slow-witted, heavy man, full-blooded, unobservant. A fact had to hurt him through his comfort, through his pleasure, before he noticed it. Yet anyone else must have observed the changed mood of the redskin long ago. Tushali had made the fire, fried the bacon, served the tea, and was arranging the blankets, his own and his employer's, before the latter remarked upon his... silence. Tushali had not uttered a word for over an hour and a half, since he had first set eyes upon the new valley to be exact. And his employer now noticed the unaccustomed silence, because after food he liked to listen to wood talk and hunting lore. "'Tired out, aren't you?' said Big Grimwood, looking into the dark face across the firelight. He resented the absence of conversation, now that he noticed it. He was over-weary himself. He felt more irritable than usual, though his temper was always vile. "'Lost your tongue, eh?' he went on with a growl, as the Indian returned his stare with solemn, expressionless face. That dark, inscrutable look got on his nerves a bit. "'Speak up, man!' he exclaimed sharply. "'What's it all about?' The Englishman had at last realized that there was something to speak up about. The discovery, in his present state, annoyed him further. Tushali stared gravely, but made no reply. The silence was prolonged almost into minutes. Presently the head turned sideways, as though the man listened. The other watched him very closely, anger growing in him. But it was the way the redskin turned his head, keeping his body rigid, that gave the jerk to Grimwood's nerves, providing him with a sensation he had never known in his life before. It gave him what is generally called the goose flesh. It seemed to jangle his entire system, yet at the same time made him cautious. He did not like it. This combination of emotions puzzled him. "'Say something, I tell you!' he repeated in a harsher tone, raising his voice. He sat up, drawing his great body closer to the fire. "'Say something, damn it!' His voice fell dead against the surrounding trees, making the silence of the forest unpleasantly noticeable. Very still the great woods stood about them. There was no wind, no stir of branches. Only the crackle of a snapping twig was audible from time to time, as the nightlife moved unwarily sometimes, watching the humans round their little fire. The October air had a frosty touch that nipped. The redskin did not answer. No muscle of his neck nor of his stiffened body moved. He seemed all ears. "'Well?' repeated the Englishman, lowering his voice this time instinctively. "'What do you hear, goddammit?' The touch of odd nervousness that made his anger grow betrayed itself in his language. Tushali slowly turned his head back again to its normal position, the body rigid as before. "'I hear nothing, Mr. Grimwood,' he said, gazing with quiet dignity into his employer's eyes. 
This was too much for the other, a man of savage temper at the best of times. He was the type of Englishman who held strong views as to the right way of treating inferior races. That's a lie to Shally, and I won't have you lie to me. Now what was it? Tell me at once. I hear nothing, repeated the other. I only think. And what is it you're pleased to think? Impatience made a nasty expression round the mouth. I go not, was the abrupt reply, unalterable decision in the voice. The man's rejoinder was so unexpected that Grimwood found nothing to say at first. For a moment he did not take its meaning. His mind, always slow, was confused by impatience, also by what he considered the foolishness of the little scene. Then, in a flash, he understood. But he also understood the immovable obstinacy of the race he had to deal with. Tushali was informing him that he refused to go into the valley where the big moose had vanished, and his astonishment was so great at first that he merely sat and stared. No words came to him. It is, said the Indian, but used a native term. What's that mean? Grimwood found his tongue, but his quiet tone was ominous. Mr. Grimwood, it means the valley of the beast, was the reply in a tone quieter still. The Englishman made a great, a genuine effort at self-control. He was dealing, he forced himself to remember, with a superstitious redskin. He knew the stubbornness of the type. If the man left him, his fort was irretrievably spoilt, for he could not hunt in this wilderness alone, and even if he got the coveted head, he could never, never get it out alone. His native selfishness seconded his effort. Persuasion. If only he could keep back his rising anger was his role to play. The valley of the beast, he said, a smile on his lips rather than in his darkening eyes. But that's just what we want. It's beast we're after, isn't it? His voice had a false cheery ring that could not have deceived a child. But what do you mean anyhow, the valley of the beast? He asked it with a dull attempt at sympathy. It belonged to Ishtot, Mr. Grimwood. The man looked him full in the face, no flinching in the eyes. My, our big moose is there, said the other, who recognized the name of the Indian hunting god, and understanding better, felt confident he would soon persuade his man. Tushali, he remembered, too, was nominally a Christian. We'll follow him at dawn and get the biggest head the world has ever seen. You will be famous, he added, his temper better and in the hand again. Your tribe will honor you, and the white hunters will pay you much money. He go there to save himself. I go not. The other's anger revived with a leap at the stupid obstinacy. But, in spite of it, he noticed the odd choice of words. He began to realize that nothing now would move the man. At the same time, he also realized that violence on his part must prove worse than useless. Yet violence was natural to his dominant type. That brute Grimwood was the way most men spoke of him. Back at the settlement, you're a Christian, remember? He tried in his clumsy way another line. And disobedience means hellfire, you know that. I, a Christian, at the post, was the reply. 
but out here the red god rule. Ishtot keep that valley for himself. No Indian hunt there. It was as though a granite boulder spoke. The savage temper of the Englishman, enforced by the long, difficult suppression, rose wickedly into sudden flame. He stood up, kicking his blankets aside. He strode across the dying fire to the Indian side. Tushali also rose. They faced each other, two humans alone in the wilderness, watched by countless invisible forest eyes. Tushali stood motionless, yet as though he expected violence from the foolish, ignorant white face. You go alone, Mr. Grimwood. There was no fear in him. Grimwood choked with rage. His words came forth with difficulty, though he roared them into the silence of the forest. I pay you, don't I? You do what I say, not what you say. His voice woke the echoes. The Indian, arms hanging by his side, gave the old reply. I go not, he repeated firmly. It stung the other into uncontrollable fury. The beast then came uppermost. It came out. You said that once too often to Shali, and he struck him brutally in the face. The Indian fell, rose to his knees again, collapsed sideways beside the fire, then struggled back into a sitting position. He never once took his eyes from the white man's face. Beside himself with anger, Grimwood stood over him. Is that enough? Will you obey me now? he shouted. I go not, came the thick reply, blood streaming from his mouth. The eyes had no flinching in them. That valley Ishtot keep. Ishtot see us now. He see you. The last words he uttered with strange, almost uncanny emphasis. Grimwood, arm raised, fist clenched, about to repeat his terrible assault, paused suddenly. His arm sank to his side. What exactly stopped him he could never say. For one thing, he feared his own anger, feared that if he let himself go he would not stop till he had killed, committed murder. He knew his own fearful temper and stood afraid of it. Yet it was not only that. The calm firmness of the redskin, his courage under pain, and something in the fixed and burning eyes arrested him. Was it also something in the words he had used? Ishtat see you, that stung him into a queer caution midway in his violence? He could not say. He only knew that a momentary sense of awe came over him. He became unpleasantly aware of the enveloping forest, so still, listening in a kind of impenetrable, remorseless silence. This lonely wilderness, looking silently upon what might easily prove murder, laid a faint, inexplicable chill upon his raging blood. The hand dropped slowly to his side again. The fist unclenched itself. His breath came more evenly. Look you here, he said, adopting without knowing it the local way of speech. I ain't a bad man, though you're going on do make a man damn tired. I'll give you another chance. His voice was sullen, but a new note in it surprised even himself. I'll do that. You can have the night to think it over to, Shally. See? Talk it over with your... He did not finish the sentence. Somehow the name of the redskin god refused to pass his lips. He turned away, flung himself into his blankets, and in less than ten minutes, exhausted as much by his anger as by the day's hard going, he was sound asleep. The Indian, 
crouching beside the dying fire, had said nothing. Night held the woods. The sky was thick with stars. The life of the forest went about its business quietly, with that wondrous skill which millions of years had perfected. The redskin, so close to this skill that he instinctively used and borrowed from it, was silent, alert, and wise, his outline as inconspicuous as though he merged, like his four-footed teachers, into the mass of the surrounding bush. He moved perhaps, yet nothing new he moved. His wisdom, derived from that eternal ancient mother who from infinite experience makes no mistakes, did not fail him. His soft tread made no sound, his breathing as his weight was calculated. The stars observed him, but they did not tell. The light air knew his whereabouts, yet without betrayal. The chill dawn gleamed at length between the trees, lighting the pale ashes of an extinguished fire, also of a bulky, obvious form beneath a blanket. The form moved clumsily. The cold was penetrating. And that bulky form moved because a dream had come to trouble it. A dark figure stole across its confused field of vision. The form started, but it did not wake. The figure spoke. Take this, it whispered, handing a little stick curiously carved. It is the totem of great Ishtot. In the valley all memory of the white gods will leave you. Call upon Ishtot. Call upon him if you dare. And the dark figure glided away out of the dream and out of all remembrance. 2. The first thing Grimwood noticed when he woke was that Tushali was not there. No fire burned, no tea was ready. He felt exceedingly annoyed. He glared about him, then got up with a curse to make the fire. His mind seemed confused and troubled. At first he only realized one thing clearly. His guide had left him in the night. It was very cold. He lit the wood with difficulty and made his tea, and the actual world came gradually back to him. The Red Indian had gone. Perhaps the blow, perhaps the superstitious terror, perhaps both had driven him away. He was alone. That was the outstanding fact. For anything beyond outstanding facts, Grimwood felt little interest. Imaginative speculation was beyond his compass. Close to the brute creation, it seemed, his nature lay. It was while packing his blankets, he did it automatically, a dull, vicious resentment in him, that his finger struck a bit of wood that he was about to throw away when its unusual shape caught his attention suddenly. His odd dream came back then. But was it a dream? The bit of wood was undoubtedly a totem stick. He examined it. He paid it more attention than he meant to, wished to, following with redskin faithfulness, some code of his own, had left him the means of safety. He chuckled sourly, but thrust the stick inside his belt. One never knows, he mumbled to himself. He faced the situation squarely. He was alone in the wilderness. His capable, experienced woodsman had deserted him. The situation was serious. What should he do? A weakling would certainly retrace his steps, following the track they had made, afraid to be left alone in this vast hinterland of pathless forest. But Grimwood was of another build. Alarmed he might be, but he would not give in. He had the defects of his own qualities. The brutality of his nature argued force. He was determined and a sportsman. He would go on. And ten minutes after breakfast, 
Having first made a cachet of what provisions were left over, he was on his way, down across the ridge and into the mysterious valley, the Valley of the Beast. It looked in the morning sunlight entrancing. The trees closed in behind him, but he did not notice. It led him on. He followed the track of the gigantic moose he meant to kill, and the sweet, delicious sunshine helped him. The air was like wine, the seductive spore of the great beast, with here and there a faint splash of blood on leaves or ground, lay forever just before his eyes. He found the valley, though the actual word did not occur to him, enticing. More and more he noticed the beauty, the desolate grandeur of the mighty spruce and hemlock, the splendor of the granite bluffs, which in places rose above the forest and caught the sun. The valley was deeper, vaster than he had imagined. He felt safe, at home in it, though, again, these actual terms did not occur to him. Here he could hide forever and find peace. He became aware of a new quality in the deep loneliness. The scenery, for the first time in his life, appealed to him, and the form of appeal was curious. He felt the comfort of it. For a man of his habit, this was odd, yet the new sensation stole over him so gently, their approach so gradual, that they were first recognized by his consciousness indirectly. They had already established themselves in him before he noticed them, and the indirectness took his this form, that the passion of the chase gave place to an interest in the valley itself. The lust of the hunt, the fierce desire to find and kill, the keen wish, in a word, to see his quarry within range, to aim, to fire, to witness the natural consummation of the long expedition, these had all become measurably less, while the effect of the valley upon him had increased in strength. There was a welcome about it that he did not understand. The change was singular, yet, oddly enough, it did not occur to him as singular. It was unnatural, yet it did not strike him so. To a dull mind of his unobservant, unanalytical type, a change had to be marked and dramatic before he noticed it. Something in the nature of a shock must accompany it for him to recognize it had happened. And there had been no shock. The spore of the great moose was much clearer. Now that he caught up with the animal that had made it, the blood more frequent, he had noticed the spot where it had rested, its huge body leaving a marked imprint on the soft ground where it had reached up to eat the leaves of saplings here and there was also visible. He had come undoubtedly very near to it, and any minute now might see its great bulk within range of an easy shot. Yet his ardor had somehow lessened. He first realized this change in himself when it suddenly occurred to him that the animal itself had grown less cautious. It must scent him easily now, since a moose, its sight being indifferent, depends chiefly for its safety upon its unusually keen sense of smell, and the wind came from behind him. This now struck him as decidedly uncommon. The moose itself was obviously careless of his close approach. It felt no fear. It was this inexplicable alteration in the animal's behavior that made him recognize, at last, the alteration in his own. He had followed it now for a couple of hours, and had descended some eight hundred to a thousand feet. The trees were thinner and more sparsely placed. There were open, park-like places where silver birch, summach, and maple splashed their blazing colors, 
and a crystal stream broken by many waterfalls, foam passed toward the bed of the great valley, yet another thousand feet below. By a quiet pool against some overarching rocks, the moose had evidently paused to drink, paused at its leisure, moreover. Grimwood, rising from a close examination of the direction the creature had taken after drinking, the hoof marks were fresh and very distinct in the marshy ground about the pool, looked suddenly straight into the great creature's eyes. It was not twenty yards from where he stood, yet he had been standing on that spot for at least ten minutes, caught by the wonder and loneliness of the scene. The moose, therefore, had been close beside him all this time. It had been calmly drinking, undisturbed by his presence, unafraid. The shock came now, the shock that woke his heavy nature into realization. For some seconds, probably for minutes, he stood rooted to the ground, motionless, hardly breathing. He stared as though he saw a vision. The animal's head was lowered, but turned obliquely somewhat, so that the eyes, placed sideways in its great head, could see him properly. Its immense proboscis hung as though stuffed upon an English wall. He saw the forefeet planted wide apart, the slope of the enormous shoulders dropping back toward the fine hindquarters and lean flanks. It was a magnificent bull. The horns and head justified his wildest expectations. They were superb, a record specimen, and a phrase, where had he heard it, ran vaguely as from far distance through his mind the biggest moose in the world. There was the extraordinary fact, however, that he did not shoot, nor feel the wish to shoot. The familiar instinct, so strongly hitherto in his blood, made no sign. The desire to kill, apparently, had left him. To raise his rifle, aim and fire had become suddenly an absolute impossibility. He did not move. The animal and the human stared into each other's eyes for a length of time whose interval he could not measure. Then came a soft noise close behind him. The rifle had slipped from his grasp and fallen with a thud into the mossy earth at his feet. And the moose, for the first time now, was moving. With slow, easy stride, its great weight causing a squelching sound as the feet drew out of the moist ground, it came towards him the bulk of the shoulders giving it an appearance of swaying like a ship at sea. It reached his side. It almost touched him. The magnificent head bent low. The spread of the gigantic horns lay beneath his very eyes. He could have patted it, stroked it. He saw, with a touch of pity, that blood trickled from a sore in its left shoulder, matting the thick hair. It sniffed the fallen rifle. Then, Lifting its head and shoulders again, it sniffed the air, this time with an audible sound that shook from Grimwood's mind the last possibility that he witnessed a vision or dreamed a dream. One moment it gazed into his face, its big brown eyes shining and unafraid, then turned abruptly and swung away at a speed ever rapidly increasing across the park-like spaces till it was lost, finally in the dark tangle of undergrowth beyond and the Englishman's muscles turned to paper, his paralysis passed, his legs refused to support his weight, and he sank heavily to the ground. 3. It seems he slept, slept long and heavily. He sat up, stretched himself, yawned and rubbed his eyes. The sun had moved across the sky, for the shadows he saw now ran from west to east, and there were long shadows. 
He had slept evidently for hours, and evening was drawing in. He was aware that he felt hungry. In his pouch-like pockets he had dried meat, sugar, matches, tea, and the little billy that never left him. He would make a fire, boil some tea, and eat. But he took no steps to carry out his purpose. He felt disinclined to move. He sat thinking, thinking. What was he thinking about? He did not know. He could not say exactly. It was more like fugitive pictures that passed across his mind. Who and where was he? This was the Valley of the Beast. That he knew. He felt sure of nothing else. How long had he been here? And where had he come from and why? The questions did not linger for their answers, almost as though his interest in them was merely automatic. He felt happy, peaceful, unafraid. He looked about him, and the spell of this virgin forest came upon him like a charm. Only the sound of falling water, the murmur of wind sighing among innumerable branches, broke the enveloping silence. Overhead, beyond the crests of the towering trees, a cloudless evening sky was palling into transparent orange, opal, mother of pearl. He saw buzzards soaring lazily. A scarlet tanager flashed by. Soon would the owls begin to call, and the darkness fall like a sweet black veil and hide all detail while the stars sparkled in their countless thousands. A glint of something that shone upon the ground caught his eye. A smooth, polished strip of rounded metal. His rifle. And he started to his feet impulsively, yet not knowing exactly what he meant to do. At the sight of the weapon, something had leaped to life in him, then faded out, died down, and was gone again. I'm... I'm... He began muttering to himself, but could not finish what he was about to say. His name had disappeared completely. I'm in the Valley of the Beast, he repeated in place of what he sought but could not find. This fact, that he was in the Valley of the Beast, seemed the only positive island of knowledge that he had. About the name, something known and familiar clung, though the sequence that had led up to it he could not trace. Presently, nevertheless, he rose to his feet, advanced a few steps, stooped, and picked up the shining metal thing, his rifle. He examined in a moment, a feeling of dread and loathing rising in him, a sensation of almost horror that made him tremble, then, with a convulsive movement that betrayed an intense reaction of some sort he could not comprehend, he flung the thing far from him into the foaming torrent. He saw the splash it made. He also saw that same instant a large grizzly bear swing heavily along the bank not a dozen yards from where he stood. It, too, heard the splash, for it started, ruined, paused a second, then changed its direction and came toward him. It came up close. Its fur brushed his body. It examined him leisurely, as the moose had done, sniffed, half rose upon its terrible hind legs, opened its mouth so that red tongue and gleaming teeth were plainly visible, then flopped back upon all fours again with a deep growl that yet had no anger in it and swung off at a quick trot back to the bank of the torrent. He had felt its hot breath upon his face, but he had felt no fear. The monster was puzzled, but not hostile. It disappeared. They know not. He sought for the word man, but could not find it. They have never been hunted. The words ran through his mind, if perhaps he was not entirely certain of their meaning.
They rose, as it were, automatically. A familiar sound lay in them somewhere. At the same time, there rose feelings in him that were equally, though in another way, familiar and quite natural. Feelings he had once known intimately, but long since laid aside. What were they? What was their origin? They seemed distant as the stars, yet were actually in his body, in his blood and nerves, part and parcel of his flesh. Long, long ago. Oh, how long, how long? Thinking was difficult. Feeling was what he most easily and naturally managed. He could not think for long. Feeling rose up and drowned the effort quickly. That huge and awful bear... Not a nerve, not a muscle quivered in him as its acrid smell rose to his nostrils, its fur brushed down his legs. Yet he was aware that somewhere there was danger, though not here. Somewhere there was attack, hostility, wicked and calculated plans against him, as against that splendid roaming animal that had sniffed, examined, then gone its own way satisfied. Yes, active attack, hostility and careful, cruel plans against his safety, but not here. Here he was safe, secure, a peace. Here he was happy. Here he could roam at will, no eye cast sideways into forest depths, no ear pricked high to catch sounds not explained, no nostrils quivering to scent alarm. He felt this, but he did not think it. He felt hungry, thirsty too. Something prompted him now at last to act. His billy lay at his feet, and he picked it up. The matches, he carried them in a metal case whose screw top kept out all moisture, were in his hand. Gathering a few dry twigs, he stooped to light them, then suddenly drew back with the first touch of fear he had yet known. Fire! What was fire? The idea was repugnant to him. It was impossible. He was afraid of fire. He flung the metal case after the rifle and saw it gleam in the last rays of sunset, then sink with a little splash beneath the water. Glancing down at his billy, he realized next that he could not make use of it either, nor of the dark, dry, dusty stuff he had meant to boil in water. He felt no repugnance, certainly no fear in connection with these things, only he could not handle them. He did not need them. He had forgotten, yes, forgotten, what they meant exactly. This strange forgetfulness was increasing in him rapidly, becoming more and more complete with every minute. Yet his thirst must be quenched. The next moment he found himself at the water's edge. He stooped to fill his billy, paused, hesitated, examined the rushing water, then abruptly moved a few feet higher up the stream, leaving the metal can behind him. His handling of it had been oddly clumsy, his gestures awkward, even unnatural. He now flung himself down with an easy, simple motion of his entire body, lowered his face to a quiet pool he had found, and drank his fill of the cool, refreshing liquid. But though unaware of the fact, he did not drink. He lapped. Then, crouching where he was, he ate the meat and sugar from his pockets, lapped more water, moved back a short distance again into the dry ground beneath the trees, but moved this time without rising to his feet, curled his body into a comfortable position and closed his eyes again to sleep. No single question now raised its head to it. He felt contentment, satisfaction only. He stirred, shook himself open half an eye and saw, 
as he had felt already in slumber, that he was not alone. In the park-like spaces in front of him, as in the shadowed fringe of the trees at his back, there was sound and movement, the sound of stealthy feet, the movement of innumerable dark bodies. There was the pad and tread of animals, the stir of backs of smooth and shaggy beasts in countless numbers. Upon this host fell the light of a half-moon sailing high in a cloudless sky, the gleam of stars sparkling in the clear night air like diamonds, shone reflected in hundreds of ever-shifting eyes, most of them but a few feet above the ground. The whole valley was alive. He sat upon his haunches, staring, staring, but staring in wonder, not in fear, though the foremost of the great host were so near that he could have stretched an arm and touched them. It was an ever-moving, ever-shifting throng he gazed at, spellbound in the pale light of moon and stars, now fading slowly towards the approaching dawn. And the smell of the forest itself was not sweeter to him in that moment than the mingled perfume, raw, pungent, acrid, of this furry host of beautiful wild animals that moved like a sea, with a strange murmuring too, like sea, as the myriad feet and bodies passed to and fro together. Nor was the gleam of the starry phosphorescent eyes less pleasantly friendly than those happy lamps that light home-lost wanderers to cozy rooms and safety. Through the wild army, in a word, poured to him the deep comfort of the entire valley, a comfort which held both the sweetness of invitation and the welcome of some magical homecoming. No thoughts came to him, but feeling rose in a tide of wonder and acceptance. He was in his rightful place. His nature had come home. There was this dim, vague consciousness in him that after long, futile straying in another place where uncongenial conditions had forced him to be unnatural and therefore terrible, he had returned at last where he belonged. Here, in the Valley of the Beast, he had found peace, security, and happiness. He would be, he was at last, himself. It was a marvelous, even a magical scene he watched, his nerves at highest tension yet quite steady, his senses exquisitely alert, yet no uneasiness in the full, accurate reports they furnished. Strong as some deep flood tide, yet dim, as with untold time and distance, rose over him the spell of long-forgotten memory of a state where he was content and happy, where he was natural. The outlines, as it were, of mighty primitive pictures flashed before him, yet were gone again before the detail was filled in. He was the great army of the animals. They were all about him now. He crouched upon his haunches in the center of an ever-moving circle of wild forest life. Great timber wolves he saw pass to and fro, loping past him with long stride and graceful swing, their red tongues lolling out. They swarmed in hundreds. Behind, yet mingling freely with them, rolled the huge grizzlies, not clumsy as their uncouth bodies promised, but swiftly, lightly, easily, their half-tumbling gait masking agility and speed. They gambled. Sometimes they rose and stood half upright. They were comely in their mass and power. They rolled past him so close that he could touch them and the black bear, and the brown went with them, bears beyond counting, monsters and little ones, a splendid multitude. 
Beyond them, yet only a little farther back, where the park-like spaces made free movement easier, rose a sea of horns and antlers like a miniature forest in the silvery moonlight. The immense tribe of deer gathered in vast throngs beneath the starlit sky. Moose and caribou he saw, the mighty wapiti, and the smaller deer in their crowding thousands. He heard the sound of meeting horns, the tread of innumerable hoofs, the occasional pawing of the ground as the bigger creatures maneuvered for more space about them. A wolf, he saw, was licking gently at the shoulder of a great bull moose that had been injured. And the tide receded, advanced again, once more receded, rising and falling like a living sea whose waves were animal shapes, the inhabitants of the Valley of the Beast. Beneath the quiet moonlight they swayed to and fro before him. They watched him, knew him, recognized him. They made him welcome. He was aware, moreover, of a world of smaller life that formed an undersea, as it were. Numerous undercurrents, rather, running in and out between the great upright legs of the larger creatures. These, though he could not see them clearly, covered the earth, he was aware, in enormous numbers, darting hither and thither, now hiding, now reappearing, too intent upon their busy purposes to pay him attention like their huger comrades, yet ever and anon tumbling against his back, cannoning from his sides, scampering across his legs even, then gone again with a scuttering sound of rapid little feet, and rushing back into the general host beyond. And with this smaller world also he felt at home. How long he sat gazing, happy in himself, secure, satisfied, contented, natural. He could not say, but it was long enough for the desire to mingle with what he saw, to know closer contact, to become one with them all. Long enough for this deep, blind desire to assert itself, so that at length he began to move from his mossy seat towards them, to move, moreover, as they moved, and not upright on two feet. The moon was lowered now, just sinking behind a towering cedar whose ragged crest broke its light into silvery spray. The stars were a little paler, too. A line of faint red was visible beyond the heights at the valley's eastern end. He paused and looked about him as he advanced slowly, aware that the host already made an opening in their ranks, and that the bear even nosed the earth in front, as though to show the way that was easiest to follow. Then suddenly a lynx leaped past him into the low branches of a hemlock, and he lifted his head to admire its perfect poise. He saw in the same instant the arrival of the birds, the army of the eagles, hawks, and buzzards, birds of prey, the awakening flight that just precedes the dawn. He saw the flock in streaming lines, hiding the whitening stars a moment as they passed with a prodigious whirr of wings. There came the hooting of an owl from the tree immediately overhead where the lynx now crouched, but not maliciously, along its branch. He started. He half rose to an upright position. He knew not why he did so, knew not exactly why he started, but in the attempt to find his new and it now seemed his unaccustomed balance, one hand fell against his side and came in contact with a hard, straight thing that projected awkwardly from his clothing. He pulled it out, feeling it all over with his fingers. It was a little stick. He raised it nearer to his eyes, examined it in the light of dawn now growing swiftly, remembered, or half-remembered what it was, and stood stock still. 
the totem stick, he mumbled to himself, yet audibly finding his speech and finding another thing, a glint of peering memory for the first time since entering the valley. A shock of fire ran through his body. He straightened himself, aware that a moment before he had been crawling upon his hands and knees. It seemed that something broke in his brain, lifting a veil, flinging a shudder free, and memory peered dreadfully through the widening gap. I'm... I'm Grimwood, his voice uttered, though below his breath. Two shallies left me. I'm alone. He was aware of a sudden change in the animals surrounding him. A big gray wolf sat three feet away, glaring into his face. At its side, an enormous grizzly swayed itself from one foot to the other. Behind it, as if looking over its shoulder, loomed a giant wapiti, its horns merged in the shadows of the drooping cedar boughs. But the northern dawn was nearer, the sun already close to the horizon. He saw details with sharp distinctness now. The great bear rose, balancing a moment on its massive hindquarters, then took a step towards him, its front paws spread like arms. Its wicked head lolled horribly as a huge bull moose, lowering its horns as if about to charge, came up with a couple of long strides and joined it. A sudden excitement ran quivering over the entire host. The distant ranks moved in a new, unpleasant way. A thousand heads were lifted, ears were pricked, a forest of ugly muzzles pointed up to the wind. And the Englishman, beside himself suddenly with a sense of ultimate terror that saw no possible escape, stiffened and stood rigid. The horror of his position petrified him. Motionless and silent, he faced the awful army of his enemies while the white light of breaking day added fresh ghastliness to the scene which was the setting for his cruel death in the Valley of the Beast. Above him crouched the hideous lynx, ready to spring the instant he sought safety in the tree. Above it again he was aware of a thousand talons of steel, fierce hooked beaks of iron, and the angry beating of prodigious wings. He reeled, for the grizzly touched his body with its outstretched paw. The wolf crouched just before its deadly spring. In another second, he would have been torn to pieces, crushed, devoured, when terror, operating naturally as ever, released the muscles of his throat and tongue. He shouted with what he believed was his last breath on earth. He called aloud in his frenzy. It was a prayer to whatever gods there be. It was an anguish cry for help to heaven. Ishtot! Great Ishtot, help me! His voice rang out while his hand still clutched the forgotten totem stick. And the red heaven heard him. Grimwood that same instant was aware of a presence that, but for his terror of the beast, must have frightened him into sheer unconsciousness. A gigantic red Indian stood before him. Yet while the figure rose close in front of him, causing the birds to settle and the wild animals to crouch quietly where they stood, it rose also from a great distance, for it seemed to fill the entire valley with its influence, its power, its amazing majesty. In some way, moreover, that he could not understand, its vast appearance included the actual valley itself with all its trees, its running streams, its open spaces, and its rocky bluffs. These marked its outline, as it were, the outline of a superhuman shape. There was a mighty bow, there was a quiver of enormous arrows, 
there was this red-skinned figure to whom they belonged. Yet the appearance, the outline, the face and figure too, these were the valley, and when the voice became audible, it was the valley itself that uttered the appalling words. It was the voice of trees and wind, and of running, falling water that woke the echoes in the valley of the beast, as in that same moment the sun topped the ridge and filled the scene, the outline of the majestic figure too, with a flood of dazzling light. You have shed blood in this my valley. I will not save! The figure melted away into the sunlit forest, merging with the newborn day. But Grimwood saw close against his face the shining teeth, hot fetid breath passed over his cheeks. A power enveloped his whole body as though a mountain crushed him. He closed his eyes. He fell. A sharp crackling sound passed through his brain, but already unconscious he did not hear it. His eyes opened again, and the first thing they took in was fire. He shrank back instinctively. It's all right, old man. We'll bring you around. Nothing to be frightened about. He saw the face of Iredell looking down into his own. Behind Iredell stood Tushali. His face was swollen. Grimwood remembered the blow. The big man began to cry. Painful still, is it? Irondale said sympathetically. Here, swallow a little more of this. It'll set you right in no time. Grimwood gulped down the spirit. He made a violent effort to control himself, but was unable to keep the tears back. He felt no pain. It was his heart that ached, though why or wherefore he had no idea. I'm all to pieces, he mumbled ashamed, yet somehow not ashamed. My nerves are rotten. What's happened? There was as yet no memory in him. You've been hugged by a bear, old man. But no bones broken. Tushali saved you. He fired in the nick of time. A brave shot, for he might easily have hit you instead of the brute. The other brute, whispered Grimwood as the whiskey worked in him and memory came slowly back. Where are we? he asked presently, looking about him. He saw a lake, canoes drawn up on the shore, two tents and figures moving. Iredell explained matters briefly, then left him to sleep a bit. Tushali, it appeared, traveling without rest, had reached Iredale's camping ground twenty-four hours after leaving his employer. He found it deserted, Iredale and his Indian being on the hunt. When they returned at nightfall, he had explained his presence in his brief native fashion. He struck me, and I quit. He hunt now alone in Ishtot's Valley of the Beast. He is dead, I think. I come to tell you. Iredell and his guide, with Tushali as leader, started off then and there, but Grimwood had covered a considerable distance, though leaving an easy track to follow. It was the moose tracks and the blood that chiefly guided them. They came up with him suddenly enough, in the grip of an enormous bear. It was Tushali that fired. The Indian lives now in easy circumstances, all his needs cared for, while Grimwood his benefactor, but no longer his employer, has given up hunting. He is a quiet, easy-tempered, almost gentle sort of fellow, and people wonder rather why he hasn't married. Just the fellow to make a good father, is what they say. So kind, good-natured, and affectionate. Among his pipes, in a glass case over the mantelpiece, hangs a totem stick. He declares it saved his soul, but what he means by the expression, he has never quite explained.
End of The Valley of the Beast by Algernon Blackwood.